Well, it was great hearing all those voices, singing those words, take my life, all of me. Boy, when we're there, we're really blessed, aren't we? I'd ask you to turn your Bibles to uh, Matthew chapter 5, if you would, this morning. And if you have your notes that were handed out along with the bulletin, uh, I'm sure that that will be helpful for you as we walk through this six-week series. And the truth is, our life is in tension. You know, when we're where we need to be, even as we just sung, we're blessed as we're close to the Lord and His heart and our hearts are, and lives are humbled before Him. We aren't holding anything back. And in the moment of salvation, when we turned our life to Him, we came to the end of ourself. That's where we first entered into this wonderful relationship, which sadly, because of this tension in our lives, in this world, we can get distracted from. If you look on the back of those notes, you'll see... Um, our plan for the next six weeks. And this first message this morning in in Matthew chapter 5 really sets a tone for that. And we're going to be unpacking aspects of how this salt and light dynamic really is fleshed out in our daily walk. Hopefully more and more we can be where we need to be um, as we look to really live out what we just sang. But as you also notice in, in those notes, there's a lot there. Uh, So we're going to have to be very disciplined. We're not going to be reading every one of these passages. There's some significant passages there, but we're just looking to set the table, look at these highlights, hopefully get a direction even for the next number of weeks. But this morning as we look at this, the reality of this passage, of what he's trying to communicate in this Sermon on the Mount, this aspect of that sermon, is really the impact that God has created us to be. He uses a couple of illustrations there. For that, uh, for that sake, we're not going to be using a lot of illustrations this morning. We already have them given to us by our Lord, that of salt and of life. But the truth is, is that God has made every one of us, if you're a believer this morning, He has made you to impact the world. You know, a lot of times we can wrestle with that, seeing seemingly insignificance of maybe our lives and our roles, and maybe in the way things are going even today. And our world might feel like we have no, no control over whatsoever in the big picture. And sometimes even in the small picture, we realize we don't have a lot of control over a lot of things. But God does. And he has a purpose for us. And what's great is as we live out that purpose, we see that impact. And that's really what he's really communicating this morning. If you look at some of those verses that you have listed there... Um, the realities of this for us as believers, as his church, is very clearly seen in John 20, verse 21, looking to his disciples before he was taken up to heaven. He said, peace be with you. As the Father sent me, even so I am sending you. We are an extension of his ministry as his followers, as his children, as his royal priesthood. Of course, you know Matthew 28, 18 through 20, go into all the world. All authority has been given to me. Go and make disciples, baptizing, teaching. And what's great is he says, I will be with you always. An extension of his ministry. And of course, Matthew 6, 33, we're going to look at this a little bit next week. The reminder and all of the busyness of life, what you will eat, what you will wear, where you will live. He says, listen, God will provide that. Seek first. The kingdom of God and all these things will be added to you. Your focus, your primary ambition being that of service to him and seeing his work through our lives. So when we look at this salt and light dynamic this morning, would you follow along with me as we look at Matthew chapter 5 verses 13 through 16? That's where really where we're going to be resting today. We're going to be looking at a number of other passages, but let's pick up in verse 13. He says, you are the salt of the earth. That's a powerful statement. We'll unpack that. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Another statement, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, 
so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Let's pray as we begin this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are our Father in heaven. We, we thank you that you are the God of the universe that has promised good, worked out through our lives because of your good pleasure, your perfect will, and your unwavering commitment to love us. We, we just humble ourselves before you this morning, before your word. We pray for your wisdom that we would understand, for your grace that we continue to be what you've called us to be. We're thankful for your mercy and for your kindness and your, your peace that you give to us as we rest in you. We pray you would take all of us, and even in this time, that you would apply your word to our lives. We pray you'd help us understand, help us to see, help us to be what you've made us to be. We thank you in advance in your son's name. Amen. As we continue here this morning, as I said, we've got to be very disciplined. I've got to be very careful so we can walk through this. This central statement, you are, is actually very powerful. In fact, if you look at you are the light of the world, if, if some of you are familiar with aspects of Scripture, you realize that Jesus said, I am the light of the world. John says the light that brings light to all men was coming into the world, John chapter 1. And so when, when he sits here and says, you are the salt and you are the light, boy, we really want to define that. Who is this you that he's talking to? Is this everybody? Is this one of those universalism kind of directions? Well, let's unpack that a little bit. And we see some of that in verses 13 and 14 in these big statements with the question, well, really, who am I? And that's really some of the implications of his statements about salt and light. It's hard not to ask ourselves, where are we in the midst of this, even as it's defined for us as we read through it. And so just looking at the context, we realize that this who are the salt, who are the light of the world is really driven by the very context itself, disciples, disciples of Christ. And we see that in verse 1. If you look back there in chapter 5, he says, See in the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and he taught them, saying, and this all flows from that. So in this setting, we see that these are defined by the disciples. So he's looking out at those disciples and saying, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Now, we have to understand, this is more than just the 12. In Matthew, it's very clear. It's not, not defined yet. But when we look at this, this bigger picture, it's those that are defined by following him. This is a large group. This is also including those that later, and we see in John chapter 6, would no longer follow him because these things were too hard for them. And so he turns to his disciples there in John chapter 6 and says, are you too going to leave me? And of course, I love Peter's response. Where are we going to go? You have the words of life. Who are we going to follow? So while there are those that no longer follow Christ, certainly he's looking out to those that will and says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. But what is a disciple of Christ? You know, a lot of times we get so comfortable in our Christianese and in our Christian habits and disciplines, and those aren't wrong. We can get numb to the questions that maybe should really be tied to this statement, a disciple, a follower of Christ. It's connected to salt and light. Jesus himself said that a disciple is somebody who is 100% all in. And we just sang that this morning. All of me, all I have, all I am. And the truth is, a lot of times that lasts for a little while, maybe longer as we walk with him farther down this path of life. But that's really what it's all about. And we've got to continue to be reminded of ourselves what is this life's purpose? What is this life's direction? Who am I? Well, he says in Matthew 16, 24, that one who's going to follow him, anyone who'd come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Talk about countercultural. You know, that's not the gospel of this age. Add Jesus into your life, and it'll be so much better. Jesus is saying, no, leave your life and come follow me. Whoever would save his life would lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. 
For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his own soul? The idea is I would give up everything, the whole world if it was mine to give, that I might have him and that my soul would be found in him. You know, this is a challenge to all of us. The truth is there's many aspects of our life that we hold back. We tell him and are frustrated sometimes because he hasn't performed in these areas instead of submitting to his will. This is a tough thing for us to die to self. But here in the context of Matthew chapter 5, we also see that we're just different at heart. A disciple isn't just 100% in. This is what we decide to do. This is what we commit to do. This is what we live to practice every day, Lord. Would you help me serve you? Would you help me make the most of today? You know, in the fall, if you look on the back of your notes, you see there's a number of things listed. One of them is a new ABF class, a family ministries-oriented, equipped class. Another is life groups. This is connected to some of the realities that we need each other's support. We need input in our lives, these relationships where we are coming alongside one another to do this everyday kind of submission to the Lord and following Him 100%. What happens is our hearts are changed as we're forced to humble ourselves before God through failure or through decision or through correction from the Word or from others. We're different. And if you look in Matthew chapter 5, starting verse 3, just let's just look at this list. This is generic. He's looking at these disciples and saying, in general, listen, blessed are those that are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We're not puffed up. We're not prideful. We come before him broken. He gives to us the kingdom through his son. Blessed are those who mourn. Ever hear people say, happy are those that mourn? James 4 tells us that in repentance, we should weep and mourn over our own sins and come and receive forgiveness and restoration. Yes, we're very blessed because we're forgiven and we're restored and we're made whole in him. This is defining a difference of heart, right? Blessed are those who mourn because they shall be comforted. The implication here is by God, the God of all comfort. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians, comforts us that we may be able to comfort others. We're so blessed. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the meek. That's the opposite of our world. Look at all those Hollywood movies about revenge and getting things right. I mean, it's a common theme. Blessed are the meek. You don't take justice in your own hands. Blessed are the meek. You don't lash out in return. Yeah, well, God's comfort comforts our hearts. God's strength and God's victory directs our lives. God's vengeance settles my soul. In his strength, I don't have to seek to exert my own. Meekness, strength under control. Notice what it says, blessed are the meek. Why? Because they will inherit the earth. Not because of our power, because of his. We're different in our hearts. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Isn't that part of the brokenness in our lives as we look to this world and everything is so wrong? Justice, where is it? When evil is called good and good is evil, who will set that right? And maybe more and more we feel powerless and be able to speak against it. We ask ourselves, Lord, when will you come? We hunger and thirst for righteousness. The promise here is it will come. They will be satisfied. Righteousness as you pursue it in your own life. Ultimately, righteousness as we see it in this world. It will come. They will be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Isn't that one of the reminders of us as we forgive? Forgiving others as we have been forgiven in Christ. Giving mercy to others as we have received mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart. Your intentions are pure. They will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Now, we don't like this one. Maybe we felt this a little bit more. More lately. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Listen, we are different at heart. 
There's a difference because God has redeemed us and he's made us a new creation. And as a part of that new creation, even in this passage in Matthew chapter 5, we see nuances of the whole as well as the individual responsibility. As we stand here this morning, well, as I stand here this morning, the truth is we are together a church called by God to impact those in our community, but also as individuals. VBS this week is a group program to impact young lives, but it's filled with individuals making those investments, individuals inviting many to come with them. And it's interesting here, even as we track this through, starting in verse 11, as we see this shift from they, blessed are those, to you. You, plural. You, as a group. Also, you, singular, as individuals in that group. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you. It doesn't feel very blessed. Maybe dividing families, polarizing workplaces, maybe being denied opportunities for advancement, maybe really struggling with the neighbors. Now, it doesn't call us to be obnoxious or unloving, but he says you will be blessed even when they revile you, speak against you, persecute you, utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. And we're called haters because we love someone enough to say God created you and he has a purpose for you just the way you are. We're called haters because we say, no, that's actually wrong. The world we live in is different, certainly. But as you look at that shift, one of many, you specifically, notice what it says, for they so persecuted the prophets who were before you. What an amazing statement. Think about the outrage of the elite, the Pharisees and the scribes of the day, no doubt listening to some of this. As Jesus said to the commoners, when they persecute you for my sake, you're just like the prophets. To Israel, this would be amazing. I mean, you're talking about Elijah, Elisha, Isaiah. You're saying all these common folk, just because they follow you, are as great as those? I would have sent ripples, no doubt, through many. You are the salt of the earth group. But if salt has lost its flavor... That's part of it, not all salt, aspects of salt. You pick up your salt shaker and you put it on your food and it doesn't taste salty. So it's not that all the salt. So again, you have this group in class, but also a part of that individual as well as with the light. You have the city on the hill, can't be hidden, but you have the lamp, which also must not be hidden, the individual lamps. You know, the truth is that as we unpack some of these elements, which I just laid out, we have to constantly be reminded of what his picture here is. He's, he's throwing out these big statements impacting not just the group. That's all of us as salt and light as a church. Where are we as a church? But each one of us individually, where am I as a church, as a disciple, as a member of the church, a, a part of God's family? Who am I? Well, if you just look at this, to answer that question, I hope each one of us would have some confidence this morning that we're truly a follower of him. I want to ask, where's our commitment? Every day we have to remind ourselves of, of why we're doing what we're doing, 100% all in and understanding that, yes, we're individuals, but we're a part of something bigger that God has called all of us to. And so as we dive into this question, though, we have to ask, how is my saltiness this morning? How is my saltiness. Now, we don't usually talk like this, and, and we're going to spend a lot more time on the aspect of salt this morning than we will of light, okay? Um, we're going to deal with that a little bit next week and, and the week to follow, uh, but the reality is we struggle with this idea of salt, and then it's an enigma, and there's a lot of ink spilled on a lot of paper in trying to describe what must be Jesus uh, must be saying here, uh, but what we're going to do, though, is we're going to end up asking this of ourselves, because as we see what he said and understand what it meant in the first century, I think it would be very clear as we look to our own lives, man, I, 
I got to ask, how, how is my saltiness? And we see this in verse 13. Let's take a look at that. You are the salt of the earth. And if it has lost its taste or saltiness, how shall its saltiness be restored? Let me just say in opening that salt is very valuable. It's very valuable. And it's valuable to us. It's valuable to us now as well as certainly back then. In fact, um, back then, soldiers were paid in salt. Salt was used in many different things. Um, they didn't have a lot of weed control. Salt could be used for that. Glyphosate, your Roundup, is a form of salt that used to kill weeds. Salt is everywhere. And let me tell you, salt is amazing on meat. And what happens on... Okay, you guys don't know I like meat. What happens to meat when salt is put on it is truly a miracle. I'll leave it to you to look into that. But it's amazing, and it blesses us every time. We, think about what you have in your, in your pantry. Everything has salt in it. You go on a low-salt diet, that's tough. Start looking at the back of a box, and it's like everywhere. Salt and sugar, you can't get away from it. He doesn't talk about sugar. He talks about salt. But salt was everywhere in Israel. It was everywhere. I mean, the Dead Sea, saltiest place on earth. You know, that valley's filled with salt, so it was often mined. And unlike the way we get salt, a good chunk of our table salt is actually um, use water to pull out of these underground caverns, and they pump the salty water out, and they evaporate the water, and you've got perfectly pure salt. They didn't do that. They mined it. There were salt marshes where they extracted salt. They dug it out of hillsides. And unfortunately, what happened, especially in first century Israel, is it was mixed with a lot of gypsum. Now, gypsum is a fine powder. It mixes well with the salt, but it's not salt. And so you'd have good salt and bad salt. You have guys mining salt, and they might throw a little extra in there so it would go farther because it's so valuable. You might end up with a whole bag of it, and it's not salty at all. What are you going to do with it? You're going to throw it out. But salt, in the aspect of being diluted to the point where it's useless, is an incredible picture for us as we ask ourselves, how is my saltiness? Where is my salt? But in light of all this, I want to ask a question before we get into that question a little bit more. What would the people in the first century have thought? Because we get light, right? We understand light. It shines everywhere. But salt, when he says, have salt in yourself, what is he even saying? Well, in the first century, these Jews would have had a very clear picture of the use of salt in regards to following the Lord. And we see one aspect of that in regards to sacrifice. You see, every single sacrifice that was offered up to the Lord had salt as a part of it. Leviticus chapter 2, verse 13 is defined there. You shall season all your grain offerings with salt. And mind you, some of the offerings would be burnt on the altar. The rest would be given to the priests. It would have no leaven in it if it was baked. And if you notice there in Leviticus, maybe not your go-to reading uh, you'll notice that it's, it's broken down to how you, you bake it or how you fry it or how you cook it in every single way prescribed and described in giving these offerings to the Lord and his priests. But everything had salt on it, everything. And he said, you shall not let the salt, notice what it says here, the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offerings. With all your offerings you shall offer Salt. So right at the outset, every single year, every single sacrifice, as people came up to Jerusalem, came up to the temple, they would have seen this practice. They would have seen this practice. Of course, in Mark chapter 9, and I'll let you read that whole passage on your own. It's a lengthy passage. It's incredible. As he speaks to these disciples walking along the road, they were talking. And when they came to Capernaum, they were in the house and he asked them, what were you guys talking about? And so in Leviticus chapter 2, we see this aspect of salt being sacrificed under the law. But here in Mark chapter 9, we see this sacrifice of discipleship. And he asked them, what were you guys talking about? They kept silent. Why did they not say anything? Because they were arguing who was going to be the greatest. That's really great. And he says to them, if anyone would be first... He must be last of all and servant of all. Back to death to self. Back to follow me. Give up your life. They don't like that. 
Now, he took a child, and he set him on his lap, and I'll let you read the rest of that, talking about how you need to come as this little one, and he talks about what happens if you sin against one of these little ones. But as you continue down, he says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands and go to hell, the unquenchable fire. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter lame than two feet thrown into hell. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than two eyes and be thrown in hell. Now, that seems pretty draconian. You know he's not talking about physical mutilation. He's saying, listen, the consequences of not checking your own hearts is huge. They were arguing about who is going to be the best in the kingdom. He said, listen, you've got to be last to be first. You got this all wrong. What is it in your life that you're striving for? What is it in your life that you're stumbling over? Cut it out. The implications are huge. Anyone who accepts me like this little child, he uses the children as an example. He goes on to say, notice, for everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. That command indicates the core of the meaning. Quit thinking about yourself. Get discipleship right. Who are you? Be, be examples of what you claim to be. You claim to be followers of me, but you aren't reflections of it. Have some salt in yourself. Act like disciples. Deal with the focus of your discipleship. This is the sacrifice even of discipleship. And of course, Romans chapter 12, you guys know it well. I'm sure many have it memorized. We are told to present our bodies a living sacrifice by the mercies of God, holy and acceptable, which is your spiritual worship. Not being conformed to this world. Listen, these disciples, they were following the path that the Gentiles follow in authority, lording it over one another. That's not how we'll be among you, Jesus said. But instead, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Listen, we need this every day. We pull ourselves off that altar so quickly. We're not 100% in 100% of the time. Have a little salt in yourself. Jesus corrects them in Mark chapter 9. So we see this connection to sacrifice but we also see it as an evidence, which this is fascinating. And I'm not going to ask you to go back and read all of Leviticus chapter 1 and chapter 2. Um, but in chapter 2, you see this aspect of salt being offered with every single sacrifice. But in chapter 1, you see the consecration of the altar. And you have this description, it's very, very graphic, of the blood being thrown onto the altar. So the altar is is doused in blood on the sides, and it's described the east side, the west side, the north side. This is all described. You can read it on your own. But casting blood on the altar, consecrating the altar, this is the blood of atonement, the cost of sin. And then you have this inclusion of salt. And salt as a covenant before the Lord was a primary thing through the first century. The Jews would have known. They would have seen it all the time. And let me tell you, when this, this grain offering was thrown on the altar, a portion burned before the Lord, including the salt, the grain would be burnt. But the salt would not. One of the reasons why salt was used as an example of a permanence of an agreement or a permanence of a covenant was because it remains. You can't destroy it. It, it melts at like 1,800 degrees. So if you were to walk up to this altar, you would have seen an altar smeared with blood everywhere. The cost of our sin, stained by the blood of the forgiveness required of us. And it would have been encrusted with salt that doesn't just poof, go away. I don't know what they did with it. We don't have any records, but it must have been there. And when he talks about the evidence of the covenant, just walk with me very quickly, if you would. Numbers chapter 18. You don't have to turn there, but certainly read these on your own. He says, all the holy contributions the people of Israel you present to the Lord, and I give this to you, to your sons and daughters with you, a perpetual due. It is a covenant of salt 
forever before the Lord for you and for your offspring with you. Salt was an evidence that you can't change it, you can't destroy it, it's not going anywhere. This is a covenant of salt. You are the salt of the earth. You are evidence of God's grace. Second Corinthians, Paul says, listen, we're pressed on every side, not crushed, perplexed. You know this long passage as he talks about how we see God's strength and power and grace at work in us even through our pain and suffering. Your evidence. Second Chronicles 13. Ought you to not to know that the Lord God of Israel gave the kingship over to Israel forever to David and his sons by a covenant of salt? Listen, we are an evidence of God's goodness to us. When those in the first century heard Jesus say, you are the salt of the earth, these Jews would have had these pictures in their mind. Certainly his disciples would have understood this, but also we understand that, that salt is impactful, okay? And a lot of times this is where we end up going. We lose some of the Old Testament connections that no doubt these Jewish listeners would have had. But salt is impactful. It makes a difference. It's exclusive. It's active. It's preserving. And listen, salt makes a difference for good mostly. Certainly you have something that's got too much salt. What are you going to do? Jesus doesn't cover that question. You have a soup with too much salt. There's nothing you can do. Just add more water, right? But it makes a difference. You know, the question when he says, if it's lost its flavor, how will it be made salty? Points to the fact that there's nothing except salt that can be salty. It's exclusive. There's no other answers. What he's saying when he said, you are the salt of the earth, the truth is the earth doesn't have any other answers. There is only one way. There is only one truth. There is only one reality. Having a little salt in ourselves, being the salt of the earth is a reminder that this is it. Listen, we serve one amazing God. We don't have to worry about many. We don't have to keep many satisfied there is one God. We serve Him. There is one truth. We look to live it. How often are we looking for everything other than the salt to be the answers in our life? This world is looking for it. How many ministries are looking for every other thing to be added into it to make it better? Jesus is saying, this is it. It's exclusive. And if it isn't salt, if it isn't truth, if it isn't reality... What is there? It's really the heart of what Peter said when he turned to the Lord. He said, where are we going to go? You've got the words of life. You've got the salt. And it's the only salt around. But it's also active. It's the agent of change. It's engaged. You know, a chemical reaction Sure, those that know chemistry better than I would be able to describe that, but it's amazing. And if it loses that action, what point is it at all? And that's what Jesus is getting to. Listen, if it doesn't actually have salt in it, what good is it? You just throw it out. The purpose of it is it in and of itself to be active and engaging. It's much like the light. We don't want to cover the light. But we know it. We use it for melting our ice, right? What good is that stuff if you throw it on the ice and it doesn't melt? Not something that those in Israel probably had a problem with too often, but it's an active thing. And it's preserving. And I just want to say, if you, if you listen, if you read, if you look to many that talk about this passage, this is where many land. What Jesus is saying is that you are here to preserve the earth. Well, <laughs> it's not going too great if that's our purpose. Is that a part of it? Sure. Yeah, Absolutely. Do we act as a counterbalance when we stand for truth in the face of error? Yeah. Has God promised that this is his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it? Yeah. Yeah. But it's so much bigger than this. 
We are a preservative when we stand up for truth, absolutely. But we are an evidence, we are a walking sacrifice, as well as an agent for impact. We're also told to be flavorful. Colossians chapter 2 speaks of, and we'll talk about this in the next couple of weeks, how we need to be careful to be gracious with our speech. That our speech should be seasoned with salt, that it may impart grace to those that hear. That we might have an answer to give to those that don't know. There's an aspect of our lives that lend goodness and blessing. Listen, when we're 100% in, when we're reflections of the one we follow, when we're more and more what he's called us to be, we impart grace to those around us. You know, I heard a long time ago this picture of a cup. You know, you fill your cup up with whatever you have, and you guys have probably had a cup that's too full. What happens when you're trying to walk to the table? You're trying not to spill it, right? If it's too full, whatever you fill that up, that's what's going to end up on the ground. That's what's going to end up on your hand, on the table. Hopefully it's not sugary, sticky. But the truth is, is that we're filling our cup, our life, all week long and every day. And what you're filling it with is what comes out. And when you bump into people, that's what splashes onto them. Listen, we're, when we're looking to be salt and light, close to him, renewed as a sacrifice every day on the altar to serve him, to know him better. And we're renewed in the spirit of our mind every day to be more like him. Grace is what comes out of us. Not hostility, even in the face of evil or error. So I asked the question this morning, how is my saltiness? God says that if you are a child of God, you are the salt of the earth. Well, I am. He made me that. He said that. How much, how much gypsum do I have? How many impurities do I have that dilutes my saltiness this morning? What are those things that pull me off of that altar? What are those things in my life that I'm looking to to somehow be the answer what are those areas that I'm just adding God onto, hoping it makes things that I want better? Anyone who seeks to save his life will lose it. Any of us that will give it up for him will find it. Denial of self is probably the greatest struggle that we have. He says to his disciples, have a little salt in yourself and follow me. I hope we're refining that. Even this morning. Now we ask, how am I shining? Am I shining? And like I said, we're going to build on this in the next couple of weeks. But he says, you are the light of the world. And he goes on to talk about how you can't hide a city on the hill. And no doubt where he was sitting, as many have looked at the geography of where he probably shared this sermon on the distance. will be a small town. You could probably see from there. But he also has a command in this. And as he says, you are the light of the world, that's another powerful statement, even as we said before, in relationship to him. He is the one who's come in the world lighting all men. He is the light that has come in the world. We'll look at that in John chapter 1. But just like that statement about being just like the prophets that were persecuted, this is powerful. This is true only of his disciples that are a reflection of him, no doubt conduits of grace and his two primary command or statements here about this shining is really a statement you can't hide the city it's either going to be seen or it's not going to be there that's a powerful statement revelation the first few chapters speaks about his analysis of those seven churches you did so great but i have this against you you face this per persecution, and I will bless you. You did so great, and yet I have this against you. You see that pattern. A call to his church. You can't hide the light. If you're going to stand for the truth, if you're going to live as disciples, truly following him in line with his word, if you're going to be salt, you're not going to be hidden. As a church, this is that corporate group class statement. 
But individually, you don't cover the lamp. You shouldn't. Who does that? And if everyone in the city, he doesn't say this, but I'm just asking, if everyone in the city were to cover their lamp, what light would be seen from that town? You know, from our house, if you look east at night, it's dark enough to the west, you don't notice it, but to the east, there's this glow. And that's Endicott, Vestal, Johnson City, Binghamton, this glow of light. You can't even see it because there's trees They keep you from looking that direction, but you can see the glow in the horizon. In the middle of a dark night, in the middle of a dark world, you cannot hide it. Listen, we live in a day, and you don't need me to tell you this. We live in a day that calls evil good and good evil. We live in a day that condemns and would love to wipe us out. Even having the freedom to be able to sit here this morning and speak the truth, to look at what Christ says about anything, much less live it or share it. And that pressure often finds us in our different relationships. It's crazy to think. I've had conversations with a few struggling with the realities of the death penalty, and yet we live in a world where it's celebrated to kill the unborn. But somehow we're looking for reasons to spare justly guilty. The innocent versus the guilty is crazy. Why is it we struggle with this hiding? Why is it that we have this pressure on our lives to speak or not to speak? Now listen, this isn't meant to be offensive. This isn't meant to be in people's faces or aggressive or condemning. Listen, we need to be speaking the truth in love and in care and in compassion, not in anger and vitriol. But why, why are we inclined to hide? You might lose your career. You may not be liked or invited or appreciated. Matthew 5, 10 through 12 speaks directly to this. It says, you'll be happy, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness. I may be persecuted. Blessed are you when you're reviled. That's, that's to your face. You know, when, when they were laughing at Christ, speaking evil of him while he was hanging on that cross. That's that picture of being reviled. Even to your face. Persecuted. Listen, 2 Timothy Three tells us that any of us that look to live a godly life will be persecuted. And sometimes that's in our own families. Evil people and imposters will go from bad to worse. Deceived, deceiving, being deceived. Listen, we understand Why, when Jesus says, you're the light of the world, don't cover your lamp. It's easy for us to have reasons why maybe just a little lower on the wick, just a little shade in that corner. He said, listen, you'll be blessed if you shine. Shine in love, but shine. Don't hide. Don't be a chameleon. And let me tell you, you may face some hate. You may have some people that push back on you. You might face some consequences, but you serve the God of the universe. And he directs it all, and you might find, you might be surprised in ways that God works through you to bring light to those that are deceived right now. We want to hide. But the command very clearly here from Christ, listen, he has this example, he has this declaration, you are the salt. Don't get confused Don't lose your saltiness. Don't look for replacements. Be active. You are the light. You can't be hidden. Don't hide. And here's the command. Choose to shine. Choose to shine for God's glory. I hope that's our choice. Not just in here when we have support but we have opportunity instead of kicking back on the couch going over to the neighbors 
instead of kicking back on the couch, looking to invest in those lives around us. Instead of being quiet, praying that God would give you wisdom, opportunity to share the truth, pray for the souls around us that they may see as God has allowed us to see. Pray that the Lord would somehow bring light to this dark world, somehow even through us. 1 Peter chapter 3. Again, I'll let you guys read these passages. 1 Peter chapter 3. He says, finally, all of you have unity of mind. This is the collective. This is the corporate body. Sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Remember back to the disciple? We have a difference of heart, even as we are salt, even as we are light. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. Even as you're persecuted and they revile you, don't return. But instead, bless, for to this you were called that you may obtain blessing. Similar language here. Peter was there. He heard. He heard this, no doubt. Further down, he says, But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ would be put to shame. This is what shining looks like. Being salt is active in seeking that out. Would you turn to John chapter 1 with me this morning as we close? John chapter 1. I love John chapter 1. Those first few chapters of John we had to translate through our Greek classes. And I'll tell you, if you want to be blessed today, I would encourage you to take a pad of paper and just write out John chapter 1. You can go all the way to chapter 3 if you like, but what I've found is that in, in translating, it, it's, it's great because it actually forces you to think about every single word and its object and its tense and its translation, and it causes you to actually have to write it out. And it was amazing to me how when we slow ourselves down and we're connected intimately with exactly every single word that God has given to us in a passage, how amazing it is. So just a secondary note. Think about writing it out slowly, deliberately. But let's talk about this like John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God and all things were made through Him. Without Him was not a thing that was made. In Him was life and life was the light of men. The light shines into darkness and the darkness has not overcome it you jump down to verse 9 the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world he was in the world and the world was made through him and yet even though he deserved it all the world did not know him he came to his own and his own people did not receive him listen if you're a follower of christ if you're the light of the world and you're going to shine you're probably going to be treated like him. So you jump to chapter 3. We're going to be here in two weeks, by the way. So we look at the gospel. And we know John 3.16. But if you jump down and you look at how he continues... In verse 19, this is the judgment that the light has come into the world and the people love darkness rather than light. Why? Because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Listen, if we just meditate on that passage for a small amount of time, how encouraging, inspiring that truly is. We are those that have come into the light. 
We have a different heart. We mourn over our failings. Even this morning as we think about our saltiness, maybe as we've thought about how we've hidden our light, we come before him and we get it right. He knows our frame. He remembers we are but dust. And we say, God, would you somehow work something in this vessel of clay? Would you somehow make me, transform me day by day as I look to serve you? Because ultimately, as we do that, we're reminded that it is he, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, who said, let the light shine out of darkness. He is the one who has shown this light of the knowledge of his glory and of his goodness and of his love and of his truth to us and has brought us into this relationship, transferred us out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of his son. This morning, I want to ask, where are we? How are we? And in the next six weeks, as we look, not six weeks, five weeks now, as we look at these aspects of being salt and light, I hope and pray that God would bring us together as a church. We are, as a group, this. And as individuals, God might be refining us, pulling out more of that gypsum, that we would truly be saltier in our ambitions as disciples, that we'd be more servants. And the convictions of our heart that he might work his grace not only in us, but through us as we shine in those lives around us. Let's pray this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the one at work in us. We thank you that as we come before you, we don't have to somehow muster up better discipleship or, or be more salty in and of ourselves as if you aren't the one refining, as if you aren't the one defining. Because we know you are the one who's active. Lord, help us to be what you've called us to be. We do sing as much as we pray now that you would receive us because all that we are in this moment, we come before you as your disciples, as your followers, as your children, objects of your love, ask you to help us shine. Pray that you'd open our eyes to areas we need to change. And even through the coming weeks, Lord, that your spirit would be at work in this church, that we would be this city on a hill that you might work powerfully through our communities for good, that even if those walking in darkness remain there, that, that they would give glory to you in the day of judgment, that you did not leave them without light, but did share the truth with them even through us. Lord, we pray for those young lives coming this week for VBS, that you might redeem, reclaim, and continue to refine many of these young lives and these families. We lift them up to you now and pray you'd be at work in advance as much as in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you please stand and join us? We're going to close our service out by singing Build My Life. <laughs>